Nation, a motorsports analytics podcast. I'm Alan Cavana, joined as always by David Smith. On this episode, a deep dive into the recent move of John Hunter Nemechek back to the truck series. Will it work? Should it work? And will others try it? Plus, our big Phoenix preview and what we should take away from the weekend when we are thinking championship. But first, as always, this is episode 93 of Positive Regression. This is the Dave Blaney edition. David, a contemporary name. I feel like it's been a while since we've had one of those. Uh, Dave Blaney, certainly recognizable name, a regular name if you are a fan of a certain age. Uh, he had memorable rides with big teams. He was a dirt racer that made it to the top series in NASCAR. I think a dirt racer that, that doesn't get the, the credit or the, uh, the attention for being a dirt racer, making it to the top levels of NASCAR. And many of his 473 career Cup Series starts came in a number 93 car. David, a die cast. For some reason, I just still envision to this day. I can think of it right now. It was a very good looking car. And I think that was the number 93 had something to do with the Amico formula that they were using. But I like what you said about do current fans understand what Dave Blaney was on dirt? When I say he won everything, he literally won everything. He was a USAC champion. He was a World of Outlaws champion. He won the King's Royal at Eldora. He won the Knoxville Nationals. He won the Gold Cup. He won the Chili Bowl. And at some point, he had, it, he, he conquered it. He conquered it by his mid thirties and then turned his attention to stock car racing. Bill Davis racing lent him that opportunity. He took it. So, uh, exclusively a dirt guy until 1998 at the age of 35. That was how old he was when he got behind the wheel of a stock car in the Xfinity series. He was 37 when he was a NASCAR Cup Series rookie. So two years, not a ton of assimilation to go from the dirt world at a late age to the stock car world. So no shock that he wasn't ever a Cup Series race winner or some outward performer uh, in terms of traditional stats. He did end up winning an Xfinity race in 2016 at Charlotte, of all places. But... Alan, I think it's a good pick for uh, today's podcast. His best season, he was 39 years old, driving for the old Jasper Engines team. They finished 19th in points uh, that season in 2002, and Dave Blaney scored the best single season peer of his career, a 0.931. Why do you, I mean, these dirt drivers get heralded, right? I mean, we talk about, you know, Tony Stewart came from dirt, Jeff Gordon, Casey Kane. It was this new generation. And I feel like Dave Blaney doesn't get mentioned, especially with the, the, the resume that he had. It's weird. The difference is, is he stuck around and he, and he got the accolades. Tony Stewart had an accomplished dirt driving career, but he made the shift to first to IndyCar and then to NASCAR before he could really stockpile the trophies. I mean, we do think of Tony as a dirt driver. Is he the greatest dirt racer of all time? Absolutely not, because he didn't stay there. He moved to stock car racing. Dave Blaney stayed there. And for all intents and purposes, he's in the discussion. He's one of the best. I mean, all of the uh, boxes that you want to check, he checked them. I mean, he did it. And he accomplished everything that he could possibly accomplish before moving to NASCAR. So that's a big difference, but it also hindered his development. He was a late bloomer of sorts when it came to stock car racing. 
And I'm going to guess that that probably had a lot to do with how he nurtured his son, Ryan Blaney, exclusively on pavement because Ryan Blaney was a legend car kid. He drove late models and then he moved to full-blown stock cars. And that's far more expensive of a route than dirt open wheel. And it's also much safer. Uh, and as we've seen, these pavement only drivers tend to assimilate early and well. Uh, actually since Tony Stewart, it was, uh, he won the 2011 championship. We've had nine championships won by drivers who came to the cup series with considerable stock car experience. And I will include Jimmy Johnson as a late model guy because he had Howie Leto as a crew chief in the ASA. And when you have Howie Leto as a crew chief in the ASA, you are no longer just an off-road truck racer. So uh, I'll posit that Dave Blaney's experience in cup actually fostered Ryan Blaney's development. Uh, might not have the latter without the former. Interesting. Yeah. And just looking at the stats, I mean, I didn't realize Dave Blaney was around much longer than I remember. Uh, the 07 Jack Daniels car for Richard Childress he was in. He drove the AOL car, David. Remember AOL? We're a certain age. <laughs> America Online. Uh, he drove the Caterpillar car for Bill Davis, the 22. And don't forget, he was leading the Daytona 500 when the infamous jet dryer exploded and you never knew if they were going to come back from that or not. And he could have been the Daytona 500 winner if they didn't. That would have been a weird legacy to lead <laughs> because he, he would have been that guy, right? Instead of the, the guy that we're talking about. Um, he probably would have liked the check that would have come yeah. with the Daytona 500 win. Tommy Baldwin would have. I know that, but I, I think the, the legacy that, that he leaves behind is, um, is, is a, is a pretty strong one. <laughs> Just given everything that he's done in the sports and, uh, and, and his family's legacy. I think Brian Blaney's a, third generation Blaney race car driver. So, uh, part of, you know, motorsports royalty, uh, and, and his brother, uh, also competed. So, uh, the Blaney is kind of carving out their own little corner of, uh, the, the auto racing universe. Yeah. Good stuff. Is it Dave Blaney's son or is it Ryan Blaney's dad? That's what's always fun to talk with those two about episode 93 of positive regression, the Dave Blaney edition. All right, let's get this started, David, because uh, something we talked about, I think, going into the preseason, at least you and I did a lot, I think, even if it was off air, was the move of John Hunter Nemechek to move back down to the truck series from a cup series ride with full understanding that he had the potential and uh, offers to keep cup racing, right? And over the weekend, last weekend out in Las Vegas, he had his first victory for Kyle Busch Motorsports in a Kyle Busch Motorsports truck and what you would expect would be a, a good year for uh, John Hunter Nemechek down in for that organization and in that series. But David, we really need to jump into this about why he did it, uh, what can come of it, both good and bad, and if it was necessary. So we are going to uh, analyze just about all this, if you don't mind. Uh, we'll start with the first one. Was this move necessary? John Hunter Nemechek going from a full-time cup ride back to the truck series. And before I let you answer, David, I just think from my perspective, every answer to this to me is kind of dual-sided and triple-pronged, right? Because for everything I'm going to argue as to why maybe he shouldn't have done, there's a complete and unfortunately logical reason why he should go down there. So we're going to have a hell of a discussion. Yeah, no, I think you you, you hit it on the head. I, I actually was thinking that there are maybe two answers to whether this is a suitable thing to do and they are, is it suitable in general and is it suitable for John Hunter? So 
it's a, it's a nuanced conversation. Um, there is not going to be a right or wrong answer, but I do challenge our listeners to come and explore with us. We know his stats. We talked about him last year on the podcast. He was off to a hot start, right? And outperforming his equipment. Uh, we lauded him for that. But then I, I think you can, uh, pinpoint in detail, by the end of the year, I, I believe he led the series in crashing, right? I mean, crashing started to be a problem for John Hunter, and that's where uh, the issues start, right? Uh, that is correct. So, uh, yeah, let's we'll, – we'll get into the crashing here. Firstly, when he signed with Front Row Motorsports, the limitations of Front Row Motorsports, I believe, were widely understood – and that is why those early runs, uh, Darlington is, is memorable for me for some reason. That is why those stood out. That is why he was being talked about both on our podcast in general within the industry. There was talk that he might be the replacement for Jimmy Johnson at Hendrick Motorsports. It was getting that big. Nemechek statistically was a top 10 passer overall in the series across 36 races. And he recorded 15 races in which he spent at least 20% of a race's laps running inside the top 15, despite having a car ranking 27th in speed. And that's the good stuff. As you mentioned, the crashing, it, I, I think you, you went a little bit delicate, but I'm, <laughs> I'm going to put, I'm going to put a bigger frame of reference on this. He crashed 22 times last year. Eight of those crashes emanated from the 15 races in which he was running in the top 15 a lot. Okay. So the, those good runs, they didn't necessarily become good runs. The per race crash frequency for John Hunter Nemechek was 0.6 times per race. That was the single highest crash rate by a cup series full timer since David Stremme. In 2009. Wow. So when we saw Ross Chastain running in backmarker equipment for a few years in the Cup Series for Premium Motorsports, it's now Rick Ware Racing, he also competed in the Xfinity Series and the Truck Series in the same year. Running frequently, I think he had on his Twitter bio that he's the busiest driver in NASCAR, and that was hard to argue. Uh, all of that was meant to supplement what he was doing in the Cup Series. And yes, he was in backmarker equipment, but you can still learn a lot driving in backmarker equipment. I thought that was good experience in a car that never had a chance of winning. So he did what he did and, and dipped down into Xfinity and trucks and competed for wins there. I think that's kind of the path that John Hunter Nemechek saw and followed. I know that those two are close. They spent a lot of time in the simulator together. I interviewed John Hunter Nemechek once they shared that uh, Ganassi 42 Xfinity car one year, um, and he spoke highly of Ross. I don't know if what Nemechek is doing is totally analogous to what Chastain did. When John Hunter left front row, it was his call. And while I understand that front row motorsports is not a marquee team, uh, not a traditionally competitive program, it's also nothing like what Ross had. It, it, it's not 
premium motorsports. Uh, signing Anthony Alfredo this year does not help front row's perception, but what happened in the Daytona 500? Michael McDowell wins it. They're a playoff team now. And they were prepared to build around John Hunter Nemechek if the finances were there, which is the case with every driver. That's not an opportunity that is available to everyone in this sport. And if our listeners want to quibble, go ahead. That's fine. But a lot of drivers would agree to take an opportunity like this and not abandon it because all things considered, it was a pretty good ride. I mean, he he could do some things in it. He could prove himself in it. And the roundabout path to getting back to the Cup Series, Alan, correct me if I'm wrong, but I I I think it's fair to to question what he's doing here. Yeah, absolutely fair. But that's where the other weird side of the coin comes in. And when we ask, is it is it necessary in this weird world that is a NASCAR? Uh, we talk about perception all the time, right? Perception being more important than reality or perception being reality. We did a whole episode on it. The perception of a driver not being a winner or how not cool it is to take a 26th place car and finish 13th. That's not cool to a sponsor, right? But if you are the one getting a checkered flag down in the truck series, uh, getting your picture taken, having, you know, doing the burnouts, getting on race hub, all that stuff. For some reason, unfortunately, the reality is that stuff seems to count with sponsors. And I guess I get it, right? I mean, it's cool and sexy to have a winner, but is is that helping you long-term? If it helps you get sponsor dollars long-term, I guess it is. But does it get you back in the Top Cup Series? That part I don't know. But to make that choice, it almost sounds like at least John Hunter or others believe that it might be the right thing to do, to be a winner, to be perceived as someone who can go out there, lead, dominate, uh, get checkered flags and maybe attract more sponsorship. I, I don't know the answer. I wish it wasn't. I wish that wasn't the case is what I get is what I'm getting at. Uh, me too. I mean, I find it, I find this to be odd, uh, to think that this logic will work on everyone. I think as a whole, those working for teams are becoming much, much smarter about driver evaluation, but you're right. We have to consider. A little bit of OEM and a lot of bit of potential sponsors, if they have a say, they want drivers who appear as winners. You're spot on. I think about Chase Briscoe getting the job at Stuart Haas in the number 14 car. Rush Truck Centers, a sponsor on that car, loved Clint Boyer, loved him, and you could kind of understand why. They were sold on Briscoe because of nine Xfinity Series wins. Had SHR attempted to sell Chase Briscoe, who we've talked about peripherally, kind of the same guy he was from year one to year two, but if they had attempted to sell Briscoe to Rush Truck Centers after his one win season in 2019, it probably would not have worked. And then Briscoe becomes the kid. SHR tried to shoehorn into the car to replace a guy that they really liked. And that's not a great way to forge a relationship. So there are ulterior motives at play. This isn't 100% because of driver evaluation being in the Stone Age. 
it might be a big percentage, but it's not 100. Uh, the system is a little bit broken, but maybe not completely. And that's why Nemechek isn't crazy for trying this. You're not crazy if you understand your potential suitors to be equally crazy. So in, in that sense, I, I kind of get it. And, and I also kind of see it already working, uh, because he wins the race in Las Vegas. And, you know, it, it was Chip Ganassi who bought what Ross Chastain was doing and signed him for his Cup Series team. I'm not saying Chip is a sucker for this path, but Alan, guess who tweeted at John Hunter Nemechek <laughs> after the Vegas race with hashtag I like winners? I mean, I, I, amazingly, Chip did not tweet at John Hunter Nemechek when he wrapped the 2020 Cup season with an average finish within one position of Matt Kenseth. And Kenseth, of course, driving for Ganassi in a car that's faster and has better resources. So we we have to assume that Nemechek's not totally crazy for doing this. He understands the landscape. He's probably been a victim of the landscape, but I also feel like he he benefited from getting a ride the quote-unquote correct way. How he got the ride with front row in the first place is because Jerry Freeze, the general manager, knew he was available. He was aware of his late model success, and he noted his efforts in his father's truck team. And he was impressed with the results considering the equipment. And I interviewed him about it, and I got the quote. And that is, I just felt like, man, if he can win six races driving Joe's trucks, knowing what I know about the level of equipment they had and who he was out running – and he's won some really big short track late model shows that make an all around great fit for us. And he went on to say that John Hunter's the kind of driver that doesn't usually come available to them, sort of like a, 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 a potential for a star falling into their lap, or at least, yeah, just a chance at having a star. They don't get that very often. That's how you're supposed to do this. If all talent evaluators were as diligent as Jerry Freeze, this predicament wouldn't have nearly the success rate it does. Um, but of course, I guess that certainly depends on, you know, best case scenario taking place for John Hunter. Yeah. And that's what I wonder about. Like what, like, like Jerry Freeze, what do I know about John Hunter in a truck? He can kick some ass in, in lesser equipment, right? In, in non, in, in equipment that is not nowhere near as funded as some other trucks. He can win races in the truck series. He can beat KBM level equipment in the truck series. So when he goes out and wins in Las Vegas, what am I learning about John Hunter Nemechek? To me, not much, right? I think I learned a lot more when I, he was able to put the car, you know, a top 10 finish in Darlington or finish 16th and have the good start he had last year. I feel like I was learning a lot more about John Hunter Nemechek's potential there, right? And I also wonder what he's learning by being in this truck other than maybe being perceived, getting some more confidence or just trying to build up his credibility as a quote unquote winner. You mentioned the best case scenario, David. What is the worst case scenario? To me, it's that, <laughs> but what if, what if he doesn't win, right? I mean, he should, yeah. given it, given his talent level, he should be winning races and anything short of a title, it almost seems like a disappointment. So if he doesn't win the title, is all of a sudden he, now he is disappointed in a lower series? I mean, I don't know if that's worth yes. the risk or, yeah, it's like, this is a lot on your shoulders, young man. 
Yeah. So, okay. So where, like, what's the cutoff? Like, where or where are we not disappointed? Because I, to me, best case scenario is he wins 10 races. Yeah. Ch- championships honestly don't matter anymore. I hear you. For I hear evaluation. You. But when, but, but, okay, win 10 races. And then what has to happen? There has to be like an available ride that's actually interested in him. And look, Eric Almarola is on an expiring contract with Stuart Haas. Alex Bowman is on an expiring contract with Hendrick. Are those realistic? I don't know. Probably not. I personally rather have Nemechek than both of those guys. And that's independent of what he does in trucks. Which, frankly, you're right. I don't care about, but maybe decision makers at those places do, and they perk up if he's winning there, and the drivers that they're employing in Cup aren't. It's a ride at Ganassi or Roush Fenway or any program with name recognition is the best case scenario if they take the bait. But if he stumbles, man, like, oh, yeah. What I mean, what happens then? He, he's it, it. It it was always a bet on himself, but. If you are at the point where you're five years older than some of the drivers you're competing against, if, if he's losing, if he's losing races to Christian Eckes, there's no coming back. I'm sorry. No, no disrespect to Christian Eckes, but John Hunter shouldn't be in that position knowing what we know of him. And he's, he, he has won truck series races and lesser equipment as, as you posed. He was, he was referred to. As a proven winner in the Camping World Truck Series by Kyle Busch in the press release announcing his hiring. The, the quote was probably written by a publicist, but it was right there. And that begs the question, if Nemechek is already a proven winner, what does he prove new by winning more? Like, do, do we do we actually learn anything at all about John Hunter Nemechek, regardless of the number of wins. And that's what I keep coming back to is I understand the gambit for this move. I think there is a pointless goal to all of this because I think I'm going to think I can only think worse of John Hunter. I'm not sure that I can think anything better of John Hunter. Well, that was a well said. We took a long time to say that one sentence, David. I think you put it as best as you possibly could there. I'm not uh, known for brevity. Uh, it's cool. It's cool. But no, that, <laughs> you, you summed it up very well there. But uh, anything to uh, – some will throw out, all right, he's with Toyota now. He's in the Toyota pipeline potentially. Is there a long-term play to this that we are not seeing as uh, non-drivers potentially? I don't think he's doing this to align himself for a ride with Joe Gibbs Racing. If if kind of that's what the thinking is here, uh, or or twenty three eleven for that matter, he he very well could be on the radar for all we know. But that can't be the end game. The end game has to be any Cup ride that is competitive for the playoffs, already in the playoffs. It's going to have to be that because he he left a team that. Could probably come up with top 25 speed. Uh, we've certainly seen it so far this year with Michael McDowell. Uh, and as it goes into next gen, it's probably a little bit more feasible to do that then. And with the parts freeze and with the limitations on wind tunnel time and things of that nature, um, the playing field is evening. And he sort of left the Cup Series just as the party was starting to get good. 
that part worries me as, as does sort of how this hinders him just developing as a driver. Mm. Uh, because that's, that's something that we haven't discussed. I mean, we're always quick to say, you know, restarting, you, you've said it this week on uh serious restarting next to Zane Smith, not what the is, same. What, what does he learn from that? Yeah. It's not the same as restarting next to Martin Truex, is it? Or Brad Keselowski no. or Denny no. Hamlin. But, but also here's the part that no one else considers restarting next to Zane Smith for a year means he's not restarting next to Truex Keselowski or Hamlin for a year. It's a year of what is formative development. We've talked in the past about how knowledge is being accrued between the ages of 20 and 24. It's the prospect wilderness, not just for race car drivers, but just for human cognitive development. It's a year of his formative development that's being spent performing at a level he's already mastered. And in that sense, it's a waste. He is actively not becoming a better cup driver in the year 2021. Can it hinder him and his ability long term? Yes, potentially. It's certainly not helping. Yeah, and I'm kind of circularly answering my own question here, but like about the Toyota pipeline, it seems like if Joe Gibbs 2311, if they were interested in John Hunter Nemechek, which probably they should be, he's a good product, I mean, a great young driver, but it seems like they would be just as interested if he were finishing 16th, 17th, 18th in the front row car or winning a few truck races, right? If they were interested, they were going to be interested in him regardless. And I would think another year in cup and showing your stuff against the cup competition you could potentially be hired for would have been an asset. I don't know. Maybe am I crazy? I don't know. You know, I just the no, circular argument in my head. You, yeah, no, it's it's like there's a difference between the magicians doing the trick and the crowd watching the trick. Like other magicians know what magicians are doing, but the crowd are the suckers. Well, are you a magician or are you in the crowd one of the suckers? I think Denny Hamlin and Mike Wheeler at 2311 are at the very least magicians and they know what's up. They know how difficult the Cup Series is and they're able to articulate the difference between a driver performing very well in an underfunded machine compared to a driver winning a lot of races for maybe the richest team in the Truck Series against competition that he should be beating because he's three to five years older than all of them and he has all of this experience under his belt. I think that they are smart enough to articulate that. I wish that there weren't so many suckers in the NASCAR garage that sort of think that way. Um, Ross Chastain may have revealed that a little bit, um, but also Ross did a lot of work compared to John Hunter solely driving in the truck series this year. So it's not an apples to apples comparison. The one thing that I don't like about John Hunter's decision is that he felt that he had to do it in the first place. And I think that's the thing that I have the biggest problem with. Ultimately, it's his opinion. It's his career. It's his life. So taking this gambit, it all falls on him. And he's going to have to live with that. But I just wish that the environment was a little bit smarter, a little bit better to where he didn't have to dip down to double A to prove that he can hit a baseball over a fence. You know what I mean? 
Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. And I wonder, do people, do you think people use Ryan Priest as the rule rather than the exception? Because as, you know, as the story goes, Ryan Priest bet on himself, took all his money, threw it at a Gibbs, uh, Xfinity ride, went out there and won the damn thing, right? All the headlines, all the storytelling, uh, me included, you know, I'm just as guilty as that as the press member, you know, telling that story because he got the checkered flag. And then what happens? Gets a cup ride because of it, right? Winners, you know, talent, but that, that talent wasn't shown or at least shined upon, you know, largely until we saw him with a checkered flag in his hand, right? The perception of it. That seemed more like the exception, but you know, I don't, I had, would have to ask John Hunter this, but is that the kind of thing he's chasing? Get the checkered flag, get the perception as a winner, things change. Potentially. And, and, you know, like to point out that Ryan Priest was a relatively high peer guy in the Xfinity series when he was driving for JD Motorsports. Uh, he was, he was pulling those cars to finishes that they had no business of achieving. Um, and again, so we, we, we do tend to lose sight of that. We, th- everybody knows what everyone eh, relatively has, right? Just in terms of personnel, car potential, resources, everything. So when we see results, it's, it's sort of like what we talked about last week in our venue discussion about Eric Jones, what he's going to have to do this year. He's going to have to make things really obvious for everyone. It's, it's going to take something like a top 10 at Las Vegas in the 43 car or for a team to realize, I can't believe we're getting beat by the 43 car to <laughs> consider actually hiring Eric Jones. It is hard. It, it, showcasing your talent in auto racing has always been this way. Um, but now it isn't just me. The, the data is available and, and plus, observational skills uh, tend to work. I mean, you can see what folks are working with and it did land John Hunter, his initial cup series ride because Jerry freeze was paying attention to the right things, the things that mattered. Anyone else should, could, could, should they consider this type of move? Um, you know, Daniel Hemrick had his cup of coffee in the, uh, well, that, that's, that, that's insulting. I apologize. I think we're rookie of the year in the cup series, right? And, uh, funding, what have you didn't work out, made room for Tyler Reddick. Apologize, Daniel, because you did what you did and you won, uh, that accolade, but he's no longer there, right? And he needs to be perceived as someone who could be a cup driver again. Is it worth going down? to like a truck series ride, pulling a John Hunter. Is it worth it for any other driver to try this? That's going to be largely dependent on John Hunter's success, isn't it? I think he's, he's the next one. He is, he is setting the bar for whatever driver comes next. Um, it shouldn't be, this shouldn't be a viable path. The sport should be smarter and better at articulating talent to sponsors at this point, because we've been doing it for what, 70 years. Until it is, and as long as this works for one driver, the next driver is going to do it. Daniel Hemrick is trying something along these lines. It's too early to determine whether I think there's a driver in the Cup Series that isn't performing up to snuff um, who can take this route in future years. But yes, until it's completely sniffed out for what it actually is, and especially if it works for Nemechek, the path will be walked by some other driver in the future. 
All right. What a dive. That was a good discussion about John Hunter Nemechek and uh, all the the tentacles that come from that story. So uh, we did good on that one. So good stuff. Um, an interesting story yeah, to see how it plays out throughout the year and where it goes in the future. So uh, we will remember this episode and this discussion. So good stuff. Uh, let's move on to Phoenix, David, our, uh, as we move on to the Phoenix race preview as uh, all three series out there in the desert uh, where the championship will later this year will be determined. So uh, as the host track for the championship race, how much stock should we place in this weekend's event if we are evaluating potential title contenders? Now, David, I know you'll go deep on this, but, you know, just peripherally or the, the top level stats, I look back to one year ago, you know, trying to compare it to the race we saw in the fall. You know, Joey Logano won, Harvick was second, Kyle Busch, Kyle Larson. That was the top four. So not exactly the championship four we had later in the year, right? But... I did look at the lap leaders for the spring race last year. Chase Elliott, Brad Keselowski, Kevin Harvick, and Joey Logano. Three of the four finalists, and you could argue all you want, Kevin Harvick probably should have been there. So the guys that led laps last year were pretty damn good and then ended up being back there <laughs> at Phoenix to compete for a title. So what do you make of what we could potentially learn this weekend? I'm pretty proud that you uh came bringing that fire. I didn't even no. look at laps led, so there you go. Yeah. Um I was surprised. I was, Chase Elliott, Brad Keselowski, I was like one, two, Kevin Harvick was third, and Joey Logano. Yeah. I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. So I you know, I would say from a team standpoint, it a lot depends on how the race breaks. And I think one of the reasons that some of those lap leaders didn't pop in the results sheet in the spring race is because it was an abject mess. There were 12 cautions, and this was pre-COVID, so no competition caution. This was a true caution, which means nearly a quarter of the race was run under yellow. There were 10 clean restarts that we could quantify, and that means 3.2 restarts per 100 miles Big difference between that race and the relatively tame race that we saw for the championship last fall. Just four cautions, 1.6 restarts per 100 miles. So it kind of makes a lot of sense what you just said, right? The, the rate it should have broken in all of those guys' favor and it did not. Uh, the spring race ended on a 112 lap green flag run. I'd like to point out we have not had a single late race restart in the Cup Series this year, four races in. That's kind of weird. The spring race had an overtime restart. So whatever we see this weekend, it isn't necessarily the kind of race that we will see in November when the championship is on the line. But I think, as as you said, talent does tend to prevail. But I will caution everyone on this. Putting stock and speeds. Kevin Harvick had the fastest car in last year's spring race. A lot of, uh, fantasy folks, betters put stock in, in that performance for the fall race. In the build up to the season finale, a few crew chiefs noted this. Eight months is the gap that took place between the spring and the fall. A lot can change and it does change. The big teams make updates to their cars. The smaller teams cannot afford making those kinds of updates. And like clockwork, we see fall off in their speeds. If the competition becomes compressed and change occurs, then I'm sure teams will 
look to improve their 750 horsepower programs over the course of the year. Uh, especially so I tread carefully when making some sort of proclamation after Sunday's race is over based solely on lap times because just a lot is going to change. Well, I mean, we talk about looking forward to see potentially what we could learn. Uh, what we need to learn is 750 horsepower tracks, right? I mean, the last two mile and a half of the season have been 550 horsepower tracks. 750 horsepower track like Phoenix is where a championship is won. Do you think this is a litmus test of which teams made gains over the off season? on this program because certainly there were some that needed to make the most gain. I, I'm pointing at JGR, I think, on this, right? Uh, what, what do you think we learn in terms of the 750 horsepower crowd and, and who made up some uh, ground on the Penske's of the world, if you will? I'm with you on, on it's going to pretty much have to be JGR. Uh, I'll put it this way. If a team wasn't targeting Phoenix as a prioritized reason for enhancing their 750 horsepower program, then what you doing exactly? What's it all for? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. I am expecting to learn about the programs that diligently made gains on this horsepower type now that it's the most prevalent on the schedule and it's the one that decides the championship. The majority of the off-season work should be on full display this weekend. I'm not sure that I get why anybody would hide anything or hold anything back. Uh, I agree with you. Joe Gibbs Racing. The fastest team JGR had last year on 750 tracks belonged to Martin Truex. And that was not the team that represented JGR on the championship four. Denny Hamlin and Chris Gabe Hart, I believe, had a lot to chew on after the fact. They were good for the first two stages at, uh, at Martinsville and competitive, albeit with uh, a noticeable disadvantage to the Hendricks and Penske's of the world at Phoenix. So there is work to have been done, work that makes sense. Uh, that team ranked seventh in speed on 750 tracks. They were slower than the 18 team with Kyle Busch. And that 18 team we've talked about for the last week, Ben Bishore's impact should be felt at tracks like this that suit Kyle Busch's strengths. He is, we will remind everyone, the best passer on 750 tracks in both 2019 and 2020 across different downforce packages. Okay, so I guess we should learn a lot, and especially if Kyle Busch is once again a player, as was kind of absent last year. So that that would be a big deal for the rest of the field. Uh, we love talking restarts. Phoenix is an odd one, David. I mean, we, you know, we talk about lane choice now and, and the preferred grew or the preferred lane inside, outside, and you break down the numbers always. But with such an oddball of the dog leg where things get, I mean, crazy, right? I mean, they just, you always compare it to a whole shot in Supercross. Yeah. When you have that oddball thing, does it throw off your data, trends, what have you? Is there anything to learn when there's so much craziness? Is it a whole shot? Am I right about that? Or is it like, it's like a, that's like a if funnel, you, right? Like it's like we flip the funnel. If you're it's Sheldon Creed. <laughs> yeah, you like shoot, you shoot outward. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, as far as how the stats look, I think it looks a little funky. If you're sixth, if you're lining up in the third row, you could very easily be first after about 200 Yards. I don't know how I feel about that. I think track position is uh, is hard fought, and it deserves a little bit more of an advantage. Maybe the choose rule helps here. I don't know, but 
Um, yeah, the, the, it, there, this is some, some funky stat work here. The grooves were a jump ball really last fall, 63% retention for the outside, 60% retention for the inside. Uh, but talent prevailed. Chase Elliott was never passed on a restart last fall in route to his championship. Neither was Joey Logano. So if there's any hope for some advantage, I, I guess it's that, uh, cup series speed and talent tends to, come to the surface at the very least we know that to be possible all right well that helps then there's there's certain times in the past when we've talked about restarts how you said potentially a talent david is is not doing much at all right not being over reactive on a restart can sometimes lead to a lot of success and i don't mean to put you on the spot here but i don't know if it, it feels like phoenix maybe can be one of those tracks where there's so much chaos if you're the driver that just doesn't do much at all and kind of just holds your line maybe you'll have more success i don't know Let's see if you can relate to this. What if, if you are someone who is given a lot of options, does that make you I hate smarter, it. smarter or dumber, <laughs> better or worse? Yeah, you hate it. Okay. Yeah. I feel like this is kind of that track, right? Like you can maybe run your car anywhere you want. And when that dog leg opens up, it presents you a lot of options. I think if you go in there, gosh, without a plan in place or without kind of the instinctual ability to audible and shoot into an opening, I think you're going to be in a lot of trouble because those options present uh wrong answers <laughs> in a lot of cases. But yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a, that's a very real issue. I think for the cup series, not so much for what we saw last fall with the truck series race. Yeah. That's how Sheldon Creed won that race. You said ninth to first pretty yeah. impressive, right? Like he, yeah. like he was, one he of was a good, he was a good restarter and some of the, the trucks in the front of, uh, in the front of the field contained drivers that were not or were rubbing fenders a little bit too much. And when that happens, that opens room for drivers that have a little bit better an idea of what they're doing. I'm not so sure that we're going to see things get that bad this weekend, but it's, uh, something to watch. All right. And, um, you mentioned Chase Elliott's restart prowess, uh, not getting past. That makes me feel a lot better, David, about my win pick. Not that I was too worried, but yeah, I'm going to be boring. I'm picking Chase Elliott to win this weekend between the speed and performance of last year, obviously in the fall, also in the uh, spring race. As I said, he led the most laps, but the speed he has this year, I just can't really seem to think I could go wrong in picking Chase Elliott to win this weekend. So therefore I am. How about you? Very fair. Uh, I think I'll make Brad Kozlowski my pick. He All will right. have good initial track position barring any sort of penalty. He had the fastest car last fall. My assumption is that it's the same car returning, and he's been fast all season long this year. Uh, similarly, Joey Logano will be very tough coming from the same Penske program. They focused on 750 tracks before it was cool, but Keselowski's early speed this year has me hopeful that a lot of progress was made. Uh, last week, Alan, he had the fastest car he's ever had on a 1.5 mile track since the change to 550 horsepower. And that's a big deal for him. I think he continues the role with a win this weekend. 
All right, those are our win picks. Maybe a little boring, but we want to pick winners here, right? But uh, we always like to also pick contrarian performers, right? Someone, a driver who's uh, maybe going to outperform or someone you're not thinking about when you may be thinking about your fantasy live team over at NASCAR.com. So, David, uh, I'll let you go first on this one. I took uh, I took the other one first. You go first on this one. Who is your contrarian performer pick for the weekend? I'm going to have my eyes on Bubba Wallace on Sunday he has a top 10 finish at Phoenix on his resume. Uh, that came in a caution-filled race. He finished 15th last fall in the relatively clean race. And, Alan, I think there's a big if here. If JGR indeed improved the 750 program, that helps 2311 Racing, the majority of whom were Levine Family Racing, who supplied... Rookie Christopher Bell with a 17th place finish last fall. I do have some trepidations about this pick. Uh, Mike Wheeler, crew chief for 2311, said that the team didn't really get into the swing of things until mid-December of last year. They were very late finding shop space. So it's been a thrash to this point. And thrashes typically do not bode well. And with with that risk, though... Uh, I think this is a track where their combined knowledge, both driver and team, can sort of help get a better-than-expected result. All right, good stuff. I'm going with Matty D, Matt DiBenedetto. Uh, first of all, he needs it. Uh, he had a nice bounce back last week. You know, we have talked about his, his poor per start to the year, and he actually had a good race in Las Vegas and just a, an odd pit gun issue and one old tire, you know, it cost him, but he still – finished in the teens with an issue. So uh did good last week. And, David, I look back to last year, the two Phoenix races. I know it's a small sample size, but it's still with the 750 horsepower. Uh He scored more points than guys like Kurt Busch, Willie B., Alex Bowman, Denny Hamlin included. Uh, that, of course, is a Penske-affiliated ride. So I'm going to roll with the 750 horsepower momentum that Team Penske affiliates will have, and I think Matty D is a good contrarian performer this weekend. What do you think? Uh, he needs it, uh, but I like you riding with uh, with Team Penske. I mean, until we see other programs emerge with good 750 horsepower efforts, they are the bellwether along with the uh, the Hendrick Motorsports nine team, and until until proven otherwise. All right, good stuff. Good episode. A lot of discussion all over the NASCAR map. Don't forget we are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Luminary, and TuneIn. We are available no matter your device. Our entire back catalog of episodes is available for free at posregpod.com. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or review. This stuff really helps spread the word. We, of course, notice it is so appreciated. If you have any questions, we would love to hear them. We always love to answer them as well here on the podcast. So reach out to us on Twitter at posregpod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, you are always working hard. Your race previews have become must-reads, as they always were, but uh, now they're even better. So what are you working on this week? The big Thursday column for NBCSports.com is on Brad Keselowski. Uh, what is at stake for him this season? He is a free agent after 2021. And his early season strength that we've seen. Uh, I will also drop the Phoenix race preview that you mentioned early Sunday morning Lots of great feedback on the Las Vegas preview from last weekend. 
If you're not reading them, uh, do consider it. It's a, a posreg vibe in written form. <laughs> well put and uh, well read too. I mean, well written and everything because uh, it, it's fun. You will learn something, right? And that is the value of clicking on anything. By David Smith. Good stuff. Uh, make sure you follow just follow all my pages on uh, social media. Follow me at my Twitter page at Alan Kavana. Uh, follow my YouTube page. I'll have some new content on there, some commentary about Kyle Larson and his victory and what it means now and what it can mean for the future for that young driver, Alan Kavana Media. That's my YouTube page. And make sure you set those fantasy lineups. Fantasy Live on NASCAR.com. Uh, myself and Amy Long uh, give a preview video every week, so I'll make sure to put that out. But if uh, play along with us, Fantasy Live, it's always fun. And a lot of the knowledge dropped here gets into those fantasy live picks in my lineup every week. So, uh, you know, I'm not only a client, I'm also a user, whatever the saying may be. So uh, another good episode, David. I look forward to the weekend of racing out in the desert. For David Smith, I'm Alan Kavana. Thank you for listening to Positive Regression. liked me that way deal because it's one thing to receive mcdonald's but an entirely other thing to know that they woke up early to face the world and bring you mcdonald's breakfast still hot in the bag appreciate you there's a deal for every morning now grab two loaded sausage burritos for only three bucks prices and participation may vary single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.